The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast contains sensitive topics and discussions. Listener discretion is advised. Previously on Direct Appeal. Ryan was acquitted of aggravated murder, and then he read the second verdict of straight murder. And when he said guilty, this sense of joy and relief turned into grief and wailing. I'll never forget it. I tried to prepare myself for it just because I knew it was a possibility, but I just I didn't actually think that possibility would come through. One of the jurors took a shower to see how long it would take her body to dry. She was always sleepy. She would always fall asleep at random things. The day after, the day when she they convicted me and said, well, we know why he did it, because he was on a website called Adult Friend Finder. He said, I love my wife. I would not hurt her. And he kept shaking his head side to side. This is episode eight, The Retrial. Last episode, we learned that Ryan Widmer would be getting a second trial. And he had a new legal team. And Ryan's new team was probably feeling a lot more confident this time around because two scandals came to light that would not look good for the prosecution, Amy. Let's start with scandal number one, which involves the lead investigator on the case, Lieutenant Braley. His resume and the paperwork was falsified, yeah. They send all his stuff to the, to the BCI crime lab in Ohio. Well, then they send it back, and then they say, and in their opinion, it's his handwriting and signature. They, they said, like, he, he must have, they must have had him, like, sign stuff, and they, they matched it and said, in their opinion, it looked like it was used by the same pen, um, the same person. So, for sure, we were going to get to bring it up. Well, Bronson wouldn't allow it again. So, I mean, this issue with Lieutenant Braley is very significant, and it's very important. And there's a couple different aspects that we need to discuss. First of all, the gist here, and what I gathered from speaking with Charlie Rickers and Janice, Lieutenant Braley falsified almost all of his credentials. And that's very problematic because he was instrumental in trial one, and I'm assuming moving forward. Absolutely. He's the lead investigator. He said that he had all this training. He basically didn't have he had almost none of what he said he had. And they found that he falsified these own documents. They looked at like handwriting on his personnel files, and they looked at other things. The lead detective on this case is a complete fraud. Well, at least that would explain why he failed to do certain things at the crime scene. It would absolutely explain that. Can't go back. In fact, you can't go back and take the temperature of the room. You can't go back and check the humidity. Those are things he should have been doing. Things he should have known he didn't know because he wasn't actually, they're saying he wasn't actually qualified as a detective at all. Who hired him? Because it's their bed. It's true. It's on the person who hired him, but it's also, he was a fraud. He falsified documents, and obviously he was very convincing. He talked the talk, he walked the walk. I mean, that's problematic in itself, but the issue here is going to become that, of course, they want to, Ryan's lawyers want to bring this up at trial. Why? Because it impeaches his credibility. And this is not harmless, I would say, when you talk about harmless errors. 
this is not harmless. So they're saying, okay, look, we need to bring this in. When Lieutenant Burley testifies, we need to be able to bring up this issue because it goes directly to his credibility. How can we trust anything he says he found if he is a documented liar? Mm -hmm. And do you know what the judge says? Don't even tell me that they didn't let it in. The judge says, we're not going to make this about Lieutenant Braley. So they're not allowed to bring this information into trial. And you're talking trial two. I am talking about- Now, this about, was not brought up in trial one? That's a good question, Amy. Thank you for asking that. Apparently, Charles Rickers knew about this issue. I don't know if he knew the full extent um, because Ryan says they learned more as they went along. And I mm -hmm. think he kind of kept it in his pocket. Like, if we need to pull this out, if we need to go there- but I don't think he knew the full extent, and I don't think he felt like they needed to go there. But by trial two and by this different defense team, they're like, we really need to question this guy. So this issue was brought up for Ryan's appeal before he was granted trial two? Yes. Okay. But for me, I don't understand how the judge could not have allowed this in. Yeah. This seems, I mean, you can impeach his entire testimony. This is where we talk about judicial discretion, Amy. How often do we talk about this? All the time. It's relevant to every single case. We don't know yet what the outcome of trial two is, but it doesn't I, matter. This is already it's already shown that that should not be left out. Well, of course, but I'm saying we don't know. Like that could have the decision to bring that in yeah. could impact the entire course of the case differently. And the decision not to has a, an effect as well that is very strong. The Braley issue was one of two kind of big scandals the second one relates to the 911 dispatcher. I'm not sure if you remember. Oh, I remember. So what is the 911 dispatcher scandal? Come to find out, it was documented he was sleeping when I called. <laughs> I'm sorry, did he say sleeping? And didn't you actually say on our first or second one, it sounds like he's sleeping? I could yeah, swear you I, said that. I definitely thought it, so maybe you just read my mind, Megan. So he was sleeping, when he called, remember, we were like, he sounds very slow, very calm. How did they even find that out? Well, let's see. So my call woke him up. And since they put a lot of focus on the things I, obviously, the things I said and were trying to dissect and say I said certain things for certain reasons, I mean, he was giving me no help. And at the time, obviously, I didn't really think about it. But looking back, I mean, he was, there's periods of pause where he's not even saying anything to me, telling me what to do or anything like that. Do you remember that, Amy? We specifically noted that there was all this kind of quiet airtime where we're like, what's going on? Why is he not saying anything? Because he was still sleeping. I mean, honestly, or, you know, what's it like when you wake up out of a really hard sleep? Like, you're not really, you're not aware, right? You're, you're not like fully... It actually makes perfect sense now. If we go back and listen now with that in mind. If you go back and listen yep. to it now, you can. You can hear it. He's quiet. He's not saying much. He's not helping much. And Ryan didn't realize it at the time because, of course, he's not going to think about that. And there was a hearing. And I believe, like I said, I believe it was before my first trial. And he pretty much just got away with it as well. I mean, he was obviously, I'm not saying he's incompetent, but he was incompetent for helping me with the call. And um, as far as I know, nothing ever happened to him. He wasn't reprimanded or anything for it, nor, nor were we allowed, we were going to call him as a witness. I don't believe we were even allowed to call him as a witness about that. Question? I can see it in your face. Megan, I'm just wondering, in your opinion, what's the issue here? Like, yes, we can maybe fault him with the fact that Sarah didn't survive because maybe he could have given better instructions to Ryan, but this doesn't really speak to Ryan's guilt or innocence in any way, does it? It speaks to the dispatcher's opinion as well, because he testified about Ryan's actions. And so I guess how can he be judging Ryan's actions when he actually was lacking mm -hmm. in duty? And, yeah. you know, he's not maybe qualified to okay. 
opine on what Ryan should or should not have done or what his affect was. So not as strong as the Braley scandal, but I could see the issue. Let's hear. There might be more to this. I believe he tried to say I wasn't emotional. But, yeah, I think it was those type of, well, normally people do this or say this, that type of thing. I mean, I, I don't think there was anything of value to him saying other what I think it was just more of those things to try to paint me as the bad guy. In the moment, it's hard for you know, I couldn't say exactly what I did, but I, mean, I think I told you earlier on that I took a CPR class in college and I was certified for like a year, but obviously never, never used it, never practiced it. So Lord knows the compressions I was given and breathing into her mouth. I mean, I wasn't probably doing the proper ways at all. Again, I don't think it's that big of an issue because it doesn't matter if the 911 dispatcher testified that he believes that Ryan wasn't emotional because the jury heard the call for themselves mm -hmm. and they could judge that. So I kind of feel like this is a non-issue personally. Okay, I see your point. I think it's an issue that he was sleeping during the call. Yes, that's an issue because he wasn't able to help Ryan help Sarah. That is the issue. But as far as Ryan's guilt or innocence goes, I'm not sure it speaks much to it. I don't think the 911 call speaks much to it in general, though. It does not. You are correct. But but yet for jurors and other people, this was a significant piece of evidence. Yeah. I don't think so at all. I just mm -hmm. don't see it that way. Yeah, it indicates nothing. Okay, great. Well, then we're past the two issues and on to trial two. Trial two began in May 2010, and they began with jury selection and opening statements on May 12th. Was there a motion for a change of venue? Because you would think with all the pretrial publicity from trial one and now trial two that the jury pool might be a little bit tainted, no? That's a good question, and I would agree that it might have been tainted, but I do not believe there was. If there was a motion for a change, there was no change of venue because it took place in the same exact spot, okay? Mm -hmm. What did we have? There was, because of the juror misconduct that plagued trial one, it seemed as though there was a strong emphasis on informing potential jurors of the court rules. By day two, they had 12 jurors and eight alternatives sworn in. And on day three, May 12th, they reported for duty and took a field trip to the Widmer home. For what purpose? They didn't do that in trial one, did they? They did not do that in trial one. But the defense team wanted the jury to see how small the oh, bathroom was. Gotcha. Okay. I thought it was the prosecution. Okay. I could see that. That's interesting. Well, why do you think the defense team wants them to see? Like, this is not this big struggle maybe that happened. That, I think because you would have seen bottles spilled over, water all over the place, and there was simply no evidence of a struggle, as far as I recall. Yeah, I think they wanted them to see that like, this was this tiny space that they wouldn't have had this big struggle. The bathtub in. wasn't in there, though, right? The bathtub was at the, the courthouse. in the courthouse, yeah. right. So I doubt they put it back for um, hmm. that. I think this was kind of a good plan. I don't know. This could backfire, though. This is like one of those situations where try on the glove, you mm -hmm. know, and it could have a total backfire because yep. they might then visualize and see, oh, I could see how she would be standing over her mm -hmm. here. Either way, that's what they did. They took the bus, they took the jury, and they were able to see the actual crime scene or, you know, scene where Sarah died. Opening statements were not much of a surprise with the defense saying, nobody knows what happened to Sarah. There's just no medical proof. There's no way to determine it. And the prosecution alleging that Ryan drowned Sarah again. Did they go into whether it was a toilet, a sink, a tub, or they just stayed away from that? No, they stayed away okay. from that. <laughs> um, the prosecution's case had one major adjustment in this trial. They presented an expert who covered sleep, epilepsy, and neurology, who testified that it was unlikely that Sarah suffered a first-time seizure. Unlikely or impossible? Unlikely. Gotcha. Not, okay. You can't say impossible. Yeah. 
Unlikely, okay, but we know that this incident is someone drowning in a bathtub is rare on its in itself. Mm-hmm. So it's not surprising that someone might say unlikely, mm-hmm. but certainly not an impossibility. The prosecution had pretty much the same players repeating the same thing. They had Upta Grove, they had the police. Much of the testimony from the coroner and the other witnesses was the same. But the one thing that was much different was the tone from Sarah's mother, Ruth Ann. In the first trial, Ruth Ann didn't have too much to say about Sarah and Ryan's relationship. But in this one, she told the jury that Ryan and Sarah argued a lot in front of her. And that wasn't something that she had said before. This was kind of new information coming for her. That's strange. It's a change. She's definitely changing her tone. And remember, she's the only person to say this. No other witness came forth and said this at all. I think in the first trial, if I'm not mistaken, didn't she say that maybe Ryan had some money issues? But I don't think that she had said anything negative about them, you know, arguing and fighting a lot in front of her. So this was definitely different. And the prosecution rested with Dr. Lee, who said in the first case, remember that Sarah could have been drowned in the bathtub, sink, or toilet. Yes. How could I forget? This confuses me, and I'm sure this is subjective trial strategy, whatnot, but there seemed to be a feeling that this was a really bad ending to the first case. So why end with him again on the second case? Doesn't doesn't this seem like a mistake to you? Very much so. And then you had the same prosecutors, right? Yeah, the same team of prosecutors. Maybe their strategy of questioning was just different. So they felt that they did better this time around. Possible. But I, I think that I would have readjusted the lineup. And the legal experts seemed to agree that the prosecution's case was weaker this time around. Oh, okay. And everyone seemed to feel that the defense was, they were better. They were stronger. What did they really focus on? Were they focusing on like Werner Spitz again? Or did they have like some new experts? They did have experts, but uh, there was a feeling that they had much stronger cross-examinations. Like again, remember the difference? Mm-hmm. The feeling was that Charlie Rickards was more polite. These these attorneys, they were going for the jugular. So I think they were just a little bit better at chipping away at the, the prosecution's case through their experts. So the defense did a strong cross of prosecution witnesses. And you you had asked, they scored points in a few different areas. For example, one document said that medics attempted to insert a breathing tube once into Sarah, but testimony showed that it was five times. Well, that's a huge discrepancy. Huge. And it's certainly, what does that do? Well, it could speak to the various injuries found on her body. Yeah, five times. That's going to speak to a lot of injuries, I would think. Even more damning was the cross-examination of Lieutenant Braley. They weren't allowed to bring up his falsification of documents. Gotcha. But what they did get him to admit was that he had a lack of training in crime scenes, which seems pretty obvious Mm -hmm. to me, lack of control over the crime scene, and that he failed to document the temperature or humidity in the home, which is essential to this case. Good. I'm glad they brought that up. Yeah. So they were, even though they weren't able to bring up his kind of credibility issues, they were certainly able to show that he wasn't qualified to run this crime scene. And there were other weaknesses in his testimony. The defense essentially did a great job here and their approach was different. And they were able to show real deficiencies in this investigation through the cross of Lieutenant Braley. And this trial was different than the first one in a number of ways. Janice described some of the ways this trial was different than the first one. As we go into trial two, it became immediately clear that the defense was 
really going for the jugular. Trial one, the attorneys, they worked hard. They made overall very good decisions with the exception of that bathtub being allowed as evidence, in my opinion. But they were very gentlemanly. For example, they referred people as sir all the time. And not that you're not supposed to do that, but there was a palsiness because the first set of lawyers were from Lebanon, the, the city where the trial was held. Smaller town, but it's the county seat for Warren County, Ohio. Small historic town. Everybody kind of knows everybody. But the lawyers in trial two were from, quote unquote, the big city, Cincinnati. They didn't have to play in the sandbox with all of these characters on a regular basis. And so I don't think they really cared if they made them mad or made them feel insulted or just went after them with some salty remarks. So the character of the trial definitely changed. This kind of relates back to what I said also about the adversarial system. This became much more adversarial. And I won't go with the cases again because we've already discussed this. But I think Janice and everyone felt this team was extremely different and much more aggressive. And it was felt through the cross-examinations, especially of the major players here. The defense put on their case from May 20th to the 25th, only five days. These are short trials. Mm -hmm. And they began with friends of Sarah and Ryan for a couple of days. And again, the friends of Sarah and Ryan said the same thing. They were a happy couple. We didn't see them fight. They were in love. You know, nobody saw anything that really raised any eyebrows. They then turned to medical experts. Dr. Spitz once again gave testimony about Sarah's manner of death, concluding that it was a drowning Nobody dispels that. But again, Spitz said that this was an undetermined nature. So you could not tell. Was this an accident? Was it a a suicide? Was it a homicide? No way to tell. Dr. Smile, an ER doctor who also testified in trial one, but Mm -hmm. he made some strong points, specifically that hot baths might increase one's risk of seizure. Did you have you ever heard that before? No, but I'm also not very well versed in seizures. And you probably also don't take baths because I can't see you having the patience for baths. I do not actually. Our bathroom renovation does not even have a bathtub in it. That's so weird, but okay. (laughs) (laughs) That aside, um, okay, so he testified about the baths. He testified that uh, one out of 100 people will have a seizure sometime during their life and that there are a number of heart and neurological interruptions that are not detectable after a person dies. Very interesting. So that's looking back at this possibility of sudden death syndrome. I think so. Mm-hmm. Again, I don't know much about seizures either, but one out of 100 strikes me as much more I know, common. I know, you know I'm very nervous now. Do you know, I was thinking the same thing when I read this. We also had Dr. Chandler Phillips. He was a college professor who started out as a medical doctor and then went into engineering. Uh, so he's a very strong background. And he testified that he couldn't find a scenario that would fit the patterns of injury and the lack of injuries to Sarah and Ryan, given the space and configuration of the bathroom. So that's why, again, it becomes so important for the jurors to have seen that bathroom. Mm -hmm. So now they, they can place that with the testimony. The prosecution made sure that jurors knew he was paid like something like $3,200 a day, but Experts are paid. Mm -hmm. Janice Hissel said Phillips' testimony was impactful, though. Trial two, one of the most interesting new witnesses, in my opinion, was put on by the defense. And that witness was Dr. Chandler Phillips. And he's been involved with the 
uh, technology that helps people like the actor Christopher Reeve, uh, who was badly injured and paralyzed from, if you recall, he fell off a horse and, and couldn't walk anymore. It's supposed to help people like that walk again. So we're talking very advanced technology and things. And his area of expertise for purposes of this trial was human factors. And that's just a term that means how do people relate to their environment, things in their environment? And he testified that based on his measurements of the Widmer bathroom, the bathtub, the position of the cabinets in relation to the tub, all the configuration of the bathroom, that he could not think of a scenario where one person forces the other into the water and ends up with the same pattern of injury and non-injury. Now you have to remember that there were no obvious signs of injury on Sarah's body or on Ryan's body at all. The only injuries on Sarah's body actually showed up later in the neck area and head area mainly. So he took all that pattern of injury and non-injury into account and talked about how people would move in the bathroom under these circumstances. It was his contention that it would not be a natural reaction for a person to claw at the bathtub to try to get out. That person, if you were being held underwater, would be grabbing and clawing at the hands of the person pushing you into the water. That was his contention. And I thought that that was pretty powerful, good testimony that added a whole new aspect that hadn't been addressed in the first trial in any effective way. So I think things are looking pretty good for Ryan from what I'm hearing. Yeah, the defense is looking better this time around. I have to agree. I think that was a very smart move to put someone on who had both medical background, engineering, and could speak to the actual configuration, the dimensions. Yes. I think that was a really, really smart move Mm -hmm. and a good way to kind of round out their case. Ryan chose not to take the stand. Good move. Good move. We've definitely, we don't need to cover that one. And defense rested his case. I would agree things were probably looking better this time around. Closing arguments took place on May 26th, and deliberations lasted about 30 hours. Oh, okay. It was considered a long time, and it was also over the Memorial Day weekend break. Interesting. So I'm, I would say that this indicates an acquittal oh, well, or a hung jury. Ah, okay. Yeah. These are longer deliberations. Mm-hmm. This is funny. We say longer. I just think these are appropriate, probably, yeah, deliberations. But they yeah. are longer, considering... The average, yeah. And considering that the trial one was, what, 11 hours, we said? Yeah. Okay, so on Tuesday, June 1st, the judge read a note from the jury foreman. We have decided that we cannot agree and that further deliberations would not serve a useful purpose. This turned out to be the longest deliberation in Warren County history, and they still could not come to a unanimous decision. But the judge told them to go back and try again. Just some criminal justice trivia for you, Megan. Do you know what the longest deliberations were? The longest deliberation, I'm going to say nine days. One of the longest, because something could have happened yesterday for all we know, right? Right. So we never like to say definite, but one of the longest jury deliberations in history took place in 2003 and lasted for 55 days. No. Yeah, it was jurors in Oakland, California, and they it was pretty much a case that there were three police officers who were accused of assaulting and falsely arresting residents. I mean, I thought I was guessing a little under, but definitely. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, I had no idea you were going to say 55 days. Wow. That's a long time. Well, 
They took their job very seriously yeah. then. <laughs> so the judge tells them that they have to go back and try. And I have to tell you, Amy, this time we were lucky enough to interview a juror on the trial who spoke to us. So we have a lot of insights. I'm going to have to stop along the way because you're going to hear some pretty surprising things. Right before, I remember when they finished and I thought, wow, that this isn't going to take long. There's no proof. I just remember thinking that. So we go into the deliberation room and all of a sudden I'm thinking, oh my gosh, these, most of these people, I, I could just tell they thought he did it. And we, but now I'm not saying we still went through all the evidence, all the different, we went, we did everything we were supposed to do. There was just a feeling in there that, and as the time went on, you could really tell that most of them thought he had done it. I think that was just their gut feeling or they didn't like him or I'm not sure what they didn't like his looks or whatever it was. Isn't that interesting that she would say maybe they didn't like his look as if that's a good reason or as if that's a valid reason. It's not. But we, we it's know, crazy. We do know this, too. I mean, I've read the studies. We've written some stuff yeah. on this before, but like defendant yeah. smiling, affect, attractiveness impacts juror decisions. Yeah, there were some things that that they said that were really kind of worried me. I know. We were going back and forth. We were doing all, looking at all the evidence, and it could go different ways. So I certainly don't pick the way of guilty because it wasn't any proof at all. They were just kind of asking me a bunch of questions. I said, "What if you're wrong? What if he is innocent? What if you're wrong?" And she just said, "This the one said to me, well, what if you're wrong?" Well, if I'm wrong, he snapped because that's what they thought. I said, "If he snapped and did something, that we're all capable of doing that, but to send an innocent man away." There, there was that. There was one juror who, he, oh, it was, it was right after Memorial Weekend, and she came in and she said, "Oh, I want to talk for her. So I, I, I know, I got. It was like I got struck by lightning. I was in bed, and it was like a lightning bolt hit me. And I know how all this happened." And then she went on to give her version of how everything happened. <laughs> she started out, "Well, she was there in the tub, and he karate chopped her in the neck, and she was going on." And I can't even remember because I, I just didn't even listen after that. I thought everybody kind of looked at each other like, what? I mean, everybody. That just doesn't even make any sense. No. Again, this gives you good insight into what goes on in these deliberations. It gives me insight, but it terrifies me. Of course. I was already already scared, but to actually hear someone come in, oh, I've, I've Figured it out. It was a karate chop. Like, there was no evidence of that. There was no suggestion of that. It was that. almost like they had, like, a dream, and that's what happened. Exactly. It seems like it started out just me. Then it was two of us. And then it kind of went up to about five of us that at least three of them were on the fence. And they were more to the fact that he didn't. They really thought there was not proof here. They just listed so many things as suspicious. Now, they really didn't. Now, they were coming up with all kinds of things. They were even thinking, oh, maybe put her head in the toilet and maybe he, maybe there was auto asphyxiation and all different kinds of things that just didn't make sense. But I don't know. They just thought it was strange where her body was. But I heard later too, that they, he had to move her. And that's another thing I don't understand about the body being dry because it, you don't know how warm it was in there. Plus he carried her out of the tub and she'd be, her body would be rubbing up against him. And they said there was no sign of any wet rags or any, his clothes weren't wet. It's like, they couldn't find anything to show that maybe he dried her off. So, I mean, I don't even get that. My body would be dry before my hair anyway. Take my hair forever to dry. But I just, I just never understood when they said her body would not be that wet. I just didn't understand that. We deliberated it, as far as I remember, for around 30 hours. And 
we did not take a count because the foreman said it doesn't matter. We're not going to take a final count because it doesn't matter anyway. So we didn't. But that my, my feeling was about at least five people would have said no. You know, I don't remember the exact, exactly what they said. They just said we could not come to an agreement. It was a hung jury. And when we went back into the jury room, that was interesting. <laughs> the attorneys came in, you know, they all came in to talk and, and our foreman broke down crying and he said, I just don't know how this could be an accident. The stars were not aligned that way. And that kind of shocked everybody, I think. I wouldn't, you know, base anything on that, but I don't know about star alignment, but that's, that was a comment. And the alternates came in and they said, oh, they were saying like, oh, you blew it. And they really did not think he did it. And I don't know. It was just very, it, it was very strange. I still can't even tell you my feeling was that their gut feeling was he did it and they didn't really like him. One, one guy was a corrections officer. And he just made a comment that no one, no one, they all say they're innocent there. They're all guilty. Megan, as someone who's worked in prison for several years, I can say that is not true. Not everyone says they're innocent. Most people actually take responsibility for what they did. I agree. I've, I've had the same experience where most defenders I've worked with have absolutely admitted to their crimes. Mm -hmm. um, that was some really interesting information from her. Now, I was glad to talk to her and I'd want her on my jury because yeah. she seems very reasonable, very grounded, very logical. But some of the other jurors that she's describing and some of the things they said or inferences they were making kind of scare me. And we've heard this, but Ryan didn't know what was going on during deliberations. So I asked him, what was he thinking? What was his feel about the deliberations? I mean, I felt good. I mean, I felt, I felt good in the sense that I like, whereas I felt like Charlie did enough where I should have been found not guilty. I think Jay, Hal, and Lindsay did enough where people should have known I was innocent. But at the same time, as confident as I felt in that, I was scared to death because I obviously knew I could be convicted because I was convicted after the first trial. So there was no time for being comfortable whatsoever. They, they came in and we got summoned back and they said that they couldn't come reach an agreement. So then that's when the judge ordered and, and I, it's been a while since I've looked at anything like this, but I want to say it's a Howard charge, maybe, or something like that, whatever, where they... Where he basically says, in, in 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 you know plain language, that no other jury is suited to come up with a decision. You guys know the evidence. Go back and come up to a come up to a decision. Of course, my attorneys objected to that. And after they kind of explained it to me, I'm like, well, shoot, this isn't this isn't right. Doesn't seem like it's not right. And anyways, um, so they went back and still came back, and the jury was hung. With trial two ending in a hung jury, what would prosecutors do next? I point out in my book that the prosecution had three options after trial two ended with a hung jury and no conviction and no acquittal. They could just drop the whole case. They could try to reach a plea deal or they could forge ahead for trial three as charged. And I thought that they were wedded to this case. So I was pretty sure that they were going to press forward as charged and try to get a conviction again. But I didn't realize this until later, but Ryan Widmer was offered a plea deal between trial and 
two and trial three, and he flat out turned it down. And when I later found that out, that stayed with me a lot because he had the chance to be out in five years instead of facing 15 to life. And he and his lawyers both described the scene for me. They were showing up for some hearing or like right before trial. And the prosecution gave him the chance to plead down to a less charge. And when Jay Clark, one of Ryan's lawyers, approached him with it, Ryan immediately said, nope, ain't doing it. I'm not admitting to something I didn't do. Nope, nope, nope. And the lawyer's interrupting him and going, hey, hear me out. And Ryan's going, nope, I'm not going to admit to something I didn't do. I am not going to admit to something I didn't do. A lot of people don't know that that happened. And when I tell them about it, it does tend to give you pause. You know, but then again, I always say to myself, think about every angle. Think about every angle. How can you look at this differently? Is this a person who thinks that they are now on the way to outsmarting the system and getting away with murder? Or is this a truly innocent person who is not wanting to admit to something they didn't do? You could look at it either way. How do you look at it, Amy? Well, I can tell you as someone who studies wrongful convictions that innocent people do plead guilty to crimes that they didn't commit. We know that for sure. The numbers hover between 15% to 20%. So I think it's important that, yes, on the one hand, you're looking at someone who won't, pl- who won't accept a plea as someone who's probably innocent because they won't say they did something. But mm-hmm. I just want people to be aware that there are people who are actually innocent who do take plea bargains All the time. In this situation, I don't think for me, it doesn't really, it doesn't lead me one way or another. No, it doesn't speak to innocence or guilt for me either. But five years, that's, these are really hard decisions. Well, you would also get time served, right? He had served, I don't know how, I mean, you always get- That's what I'm saying. So it would be even less than five years. It would have been a couple years he would have served. I guess now that you're bringing up the length of the sentence, well, the length of the offer, I don't know. I think maybe you are looking at someone who's innocent. That's a sweet deal. I've heard of people who, it's a sweet deal um, if you're, especially if you're guilty. Of course. But I've definitely heard of people, I don't know if you know offenders, I know at least two offenders who would not admit to a parole board that they mm-hmm. did, uh, they maintain their innocence and they would not say that they did something. And so they've been denied parole pretty consistently. And they both, and these are both people who've served like 20 plus years and they, they won't admit to doing something they said they didn't do. In my experience, talking to people who are wrongfully convicted, they would rather die in prison then admit to something they didn't do. And I can't think, and this is just anecdotally, not empirically, but I can't think of any example where somebody said that they did it just to get parole at that point. It's more important for them to maintain their innocence at that point. So now we know that Ryan refused the plea deal. So as Janice pointed out properly, the prosecution could decide what to do now that they have offered him a deal. Do they want to go forward to trial three or do they want to, they don't have to forge forward at all. They could decide at this point, hey, we're in for two, we're done. What do you think they're going to do? Well, I can tell you, I think most of the time they wouldn't go for a third trial because at that point, do you really want to waste the time and the resources? You and I both know how much they have to put into going to trial. Yeah. I think of the opposite, though. I, th- I see in the cases where they dig in and of they've course. already put this in and now they've, they've got to like follow it through. Well, in the Ryan Widmer case, after the jury was hung, the prosecution decided to go for round three. And this time, they had an absolute bombshell witness that would change everything. Next time on Direct Appeal. 
While gearing up for his third trial, Ryan returns home to seek a semblance of a normal life. But would his actions between trials seal his fate? Direct Appeal Season 2 is written and hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer is James Varga. Editing by Jose Alfonso. And special thanks to Janice Hissel, whose book Submerged was integral to this production. If you have a tip, you can submit through our website or by emailing us at tips at directappealpodcast.com. You can also help us out by following or leaving a review wherever you listen to your podcasts.